This is the CQ on Congress Coronavirus Special Report. We are bringing you daily updates on the policy news you need to know using the reporting prowess of CQ Roll Call. I'm Sean Zeller. It's Wednesday, April 8th. The daily death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is now approaching 2,000, and it continues to rise. But deaths are a lagging indicator, and some models are predicting a peak for the virus soon. In hotspots like New York, modelers are basing projections on a declining number of people entering hospitals and intensive care. But some experts warn that could also be the result of overburdened hospitals turning away sick patients. Bernie Sanders officially ended his Democratic presidential campaign today, which had looked hopeless even before the virus took hold. The Vermont senator had once planned to carry on in order to advance progressive policies, but said he could not because of the virus. I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. Meanwhile, Congress continues to work on yet another virus relief bill. It could include more money for forgivable small business loans and aid to hospitals, states, and hungry Americans. Also on the table, another round of checks for Americans still awaiting the first batch of $1,200 payments. Republicans and Democrats are divided over the size of the next relief bill. CQ Roll Call's Jennifer Shutt will join us in a minute to explain. And later, I'll have an interview with Chuck Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, which works closely with police departments on how they are coping, the state of crime, and what Congress can do to help. And now to Jennifer Shutt with the latest on the relief bill taking shape. This week, Congress is once again racing to pass additional aid to help people and the economy um, continue to kind of go through this this slog um, that is the sort of lockdown for coronavirus. The White House and Senate Republicans are proposing about $250 billion in additional aid for that small business loan program. And they are likely to try to move that through the Senate on Thursday morning during what's known as a pro forma session, just sort of a, a short, quick Senate session. Um, where you normally don't see legislative activity. And Senate Republicans are hoping to move that bill through what's known as unanimous consent, kind of just a quick process where you don't need that many senators on the floor. You don't need all 100 of them coming back to Washington, D.C. amid this pandemic. But there are a few issues. And so we don't think right now that Senate Democrats are going to agree to move that bill through the Senate via unanimous consent. And so early on Wednesday morning, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, they sent out this list of proposals that they want to see added to that bill. And that would include $100 billion in additional aid for hospitals, community centers, and health systems, an additional $150 billion to help state and local governments as this pandemic continues to cause severe funding issues for state and local governments. And then they want to provide a little bit of additional food aid in this legislation as well through a 15% increase to the maximum benefit for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, 
sometimes referred to as food stamps or SNAP. Um, and Democrats also want to make sure that that additional $250 billion for that small business loan program is going to businesses and individuals who don't have those sort of traditional relationships um, with bigger banks. And so they want to make sure that about half of that or about $125 billion goes towards women and minority-owned businesses. And it sounds like right now the White House and Senate Republicans are not on board with this full list of proposals that that Speaker Pelosi and that leader Schumer laid out. Um, and so there is a lot of back and forth here about what this final piece of legislation will look like. And that's some of the things that we are going to continue tracking heading into Thursday morning's Senate performa session and then Friday morning's House performa session. And so right now, even if there is agreement um, between House Democrats, Senate Republicans and the Trump administration about how to form up this, what they're referring to as an interim package to address COVID-19 there still could be some issues um, for the House vote, even if there's broad bipartisan support for this legislation eventually. And that's because Kentucky GOP Congressman Thomas Massey has indicated pretty strongly that he would like to have some type of a repeat of two weeks ago um, when a lot of House members had to fly back to that chamber in order to clear the previous $2.3 trillion aid package. And so one of the things that he said earlier today on Fox Business is that he wants um, the House to have some type of uh, remote voting provision, and he wants the House to approve whatever this package may be through that. But of course, the, the House has looked into this idea of remote voting before and has, you know, really leaned heavily against doing that. And so right now, everyone is also watching uh, Congressman Massey to see if there is a bipartisan agreement on this additional funding um, for the small business loan program, which is officially known as the Paycheck Protection Program, um, if that could, you know, once again be slowed down in the House, um, or if you'd have to see a large number of House members, at least half of that chamber, fly back or drive back to Washington, D.C., um, in kind of a repeat of exactly two weeks ago. Uh, so all that is going to be happening in the coming days, so stay tuned. Across the country, police officers say their leaders are telling them to stand down on enforcement of some crimes in order to reduce the risk of spreading the virus. At the same time, officers are taking on new duties, enforcing stay-at-home orders and quarantines as they fear for their own health. Here's my talk with the Police Executive Research Forum's Chuck Wexler. So, Chuck, are police scaling back enforcement uh, in light of the virus, you know, so as not to come into contact with people to violate the social distancing protocols? Well, I think, you know, arrests are down across the country. Crime is down for the most part. But in terms of enforcing different ordinances and stay-at-home policies, I, I think for the most part, Police departments are using, are trying to educate the community. They're trying to, you know, persuade people um, that it's in their best interests and the interests of their neighbors to be uh, indoors. So the last thing that the police want to do is is arrest someone or even cite them. Now, 
having said that, there are some, there's 18,000 police departments, so there's, it's not, there's not one way to do it. There's not a national police. So you do have some agencies that are going to be firmer than others. You know, this is a time when people are very fearful. They're very concerned. And, you know, the police don't want to raise that anxiety level. They want to do whatever they can. And there can be extenuating circumstances why someone is outside. Someone's going to the grocery store. Someone's going to visit someone who's sick. So, you know, police are inherently given a lot of discretion. And if there ever was a time to exercise this discretion, now is the time. How much are police being asked to do so far as enforcing stay-at-home orders, curfews, travel restrictions, quarantines? I mean, it's a major change for them to, to enforce things like that. How much are they actually doing? All around the world, police are involved in the same thing. In some countries, like in Israel, where I just spoke to them, um, you, know, you, you, will be, you know, you will be arrested or detained. Uh, I mean, it's very strict. Other places, you know, um, they're going to use good judgment. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's it's a very, um, it, it's very sort of idiosyncratic based upon the police culture that you're dealing with, the community expectations. Are the police being, is this their number one job? Well, it, it, there's a public health emergency. The police play a role here uh, in trying to make sure everybody's safe. There's a lot of discretion that's required. Calls for service are way down uh, because people are not out. But, you know, there are situations where, you know, the police may have to check on someone. You know, uh, a concerned relative calls the police and says they haven't heard, you know, from a relative. And so the police, you know, will will will, will have to go to that residence. So, um, yeah, this is a big part of what the police are doing today is is somehow trying to reassure the public. Um, in some places, the police, you know, have, uh, because the elderly are so at risk, uh, there's a way that the police can, can interact with the community that's not just about telling them what they can't do, but being supportive in some ways. How's morale for uh, the departments at this time? You spend a lot of time talking to them. How are they coping with these new responsibilities and, and the risks they are taking in carrying them out? You know, I think you'd have to look at what they're what they're facing. I mean, the the issues are uh, dependent upon the department you're working in. So, for for example, in New York City today, 20% of their workforce is has the virus and is out, and that's a huge number. I talked to the head of uh, uh, the chief of the department, Terry Monahan, and they have 150 uh, DOAs, people dead on arrival, a day. And that number is increasing uh, significantly. So the magnitude of this crisis is huge. The concern you have, you know, internally within a police department, as I say, 20% of, of New York, I talked to the police chief of Detroit, who has the virus, the police chief of Aurora. Police chief of Detroit had his um, head of uh, homicide die, had a dispatcher die. Uh, police chief in Aurora had... Um, her deputy uh, get the virus and her mayor. So we've we've not seen anything like this. There's just no way to compare this to, you know, even 9/11. It was a it was a very horrific uh, day. Uh, but there there was a sense that you know you would get through this. There's no sense of when this is going to continue. So police departments are having to be sensitive to um, 
the, 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 the mental and physical health of their officers. They're having to do things to keep their workforce healthy, split the force in half. So you're seeing some changes. I mean, this, but, but um, many um, departments have uh, policies in place to handle this. I think what's different about this is the magnitude and the length and the physical concerns about keeping your workforce healthy. What happens when you have a dispatcher uh, in an area and and suddenly they get infected? Like in, that happened uh, uh, in Detroit, and they actually had to close down that dispatch center and open up another one. So um, it's almost like everyday uh, police chiefs, sheriffs, are having to um, call things differently. So in terms of morale, interestingly enough, sometimes when the police are in a crisis situation like this and they're called upon to deal with it, morale is actually pretty good because they they don't really have time to think about you know themselves. They need to think about what's best for the community. And this is why they serve. They, they serve because they know that there are certain... Uh, circumstances in life where they're expected to step up. doesn't mean that police chiefs aren't sensitive to this. They're messaging. They're caring about them. They're, uh, you know, we talk to police chiefs in Canada. They'll have like half of uh, their force at home to keep them healthy. So departments are having to make a lot of accommodations. Departments are, you know, by and large do not have the capacity to test quickly. So you're having to put officers in quarantine situations for 14 days. And that's a huge, you know, that's two weeks. That's a a big number. And then some departments aren't able to determine whether that person is, you know, healthy enough to come back because they can't test them. Now, you mentioned that calls are down to police departments, 911 calls. So that's that's a good thing. But can we expect that to last with, um, you know, people hurting financially, with adolescents out of school, potentially for many months? Are police departments envisioning that at some point we may see crime increase? It's hard to know, you know, when the the end of this is. We we're, we're, It feels like we're in the middle of it. And in terms of crime, at least the good news is, for the most part, crime is is down in in most areas because um, you know you don't have people on the street, you don't have the same opportunities that crime presents. Um, but um, it is it is something to be concerned about as you look into the summer. Uh, you you worry about people who don't have you know living in impoverished areas who don't have air conditioning and who want to be outside and are just tired of, uh, you know, isolating themselves. I mean, we're social people. We like to see one another. And um, this is going to test America's uh, resolve. Police are starting to think about, well, what happens when you let people out? Can you let everybody out at the same time? Should you do it staggered? You know, that that's a really interesting question that Every um, police department city should be thinking not only of what where we are today, but what's going to happen tomorrow. How do you sustain this? This is taking a real hit um, on local police and sheriff's departments. I talked to one sheriff this morning who said they're starting to think about you know having to furlough people because this is so expensive, uh, especially if you've got people on overtime and you've got tax revenues that are being affected by sales tax and so forth. Now, Chuck, you mentioned the financial strain. Congress is at work on a fourth relief law related to the virus. 
are there things that police departments could use from Congress? Should Congress be attuned to and providing to help them as they deal with this? Well, certainly, you know, equipment-wise, um, the, the the proper uh, equipment that you need from gloves to masks and so forth, that's really number one. Um, uh, also, as we, you know, think about this in terms of uh, overtime issues um, and ways to, um, you know, support their municipalities that are going to be strapped. Um, you know, usually a crisis um, like the sniper case here in Washington, D.C., it went for 20 days. And afterwards, the government uh, was helpful in supporting uh, the jurisdictions that were involved in the sniper case. So, I mean, I think at, at this point, I think cities and towns are going to need support for first responders and mental health people. Um, I, I, I don't know what, what that will entail, but I do know, you know, with 12-hour shifts and with overtime, uh, cities are going to be hurting. So I think certainly, you know, a way that Congress can view state and local entities and be supportive. First thing, uh, two, is testing. Uh, the big issue, a huge issue, is that first responders, not just police, but firefighters and uh, uh, medical personnel, uh, even grocery clerks, for God's sakes, should be have you know get to the the front of the line in terms of being tested, not for their own self interest, but more to keep them assured that they're okay and that they can you know continue to serve the community. That's a big issue. You know, whatever can be done to expedite testing on a national basis so that first responders and grocery clerks and people like that that have to be out there. Um, can just know the, with a certainty. And I think that's going to be a big part of when we get out of this is how do we continue to measure, you know, the community uh, and, and make sure that people are safe. Uh, I think that's going to be a big step down the road. All right, Chuck. We appreciate you joining us today. All right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And finally tonight, preliminary data from New York on those suffering from COVID-19 reveals an unsettling reality. The virus is hitting minorities hardest, particularly Blacks and Hispanics, whose age-adjusted likelihood of perishing from the disease is around twice that of whites. That's our CQ on Congress coronavirus special report for tonight. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest. For all of the CQ Roll Call Newsroom, I'm Sean Zeller.